Hello there and welcome to our podcast, Conversations in Noosa. My name is John Caruso. My next guest has been a journalist for many decades. Many might remember him as a reporter on Seven Local News. He started there back in 1998. He then took on a role as media advisor with controversial MP Peter Slipper, the former member for Fisher. Richard Brinsmer tells me that there were times when the avalanche of phone calls into Mr Slipper's office was so great that he was instructed not to answer the phones. We talk about Richard's time with Mr Slipper in the podcast you're about to hear, as well as Richard's own run at politics, where he ran as an independent for a state seat in 2017, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I didn't always want to be a journalist, but you see, my sister is a journalist. She's about one year younger than me, and we, we grew up in Toowoomba, and she was a journalist at the Toowoomba Chronicle. And I was, I was sort of fortunate and unfortunate to get a job straight out of high school. I toyed with the idea of actually staying on and going to university to do visual arts. And, but then I got this job offer it's pretty much straight out of high school. So I, um, for about four years, I, I just worked. But um, my sister, who I said was a year younger than me, she went straight to uni after high school and did journalism. And we were still living at home at, at the time. And she used to come home with all the stories behind the stories and, um, and the gossip and, <laughs> and um, who was sleeping with who, you know, to put it bluntly and all that sort of thing. And it, I just got a little bit interested in journalism through that. And, um, and I also had an, I had an interest in marketing. So it was really uh, – so after a few years of working, I decided to go back to uni. And I, I wanted to go back full time because I didn't want to – just work and do part-time and all that sort of thing. So I went back to uni full-time and I ended up choosing journalism. And I did some marketing subjects, but I just bummed out so badly on those. You know, I failed those subjects. So I'm glad that I ended up doing journalism. Journalism, communications and and a bit of public relations as well. And was The Chronicle your first place where you started to work? Um, No, it wasn't. Just to get you a job there? No. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I sort of had a couple of jobs at the same time. I... um, I was doing part-time work at ABC Radio in Toowoomba as a sort of a part-time sports reporter. And I did actually do a little bit of holiday work um, at the Chronicle in the features department, you know, writing feature stories for for advertisers. And um, yeah, so, and there were times during the holidays when I was actually working at ABC Radio in the morning from 5am to 7am, and then going from there straight to the Chronicle. And it was actually a really good time because, um, as you would know, the writing styles of radio and newspaper are different. And you can get into this uh, rhythm of writing for one, and sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to switch over writing for the other one. So this was a really good time for me. You know, I was probably in my second or third year at uni where I was working in the morning at ABC Radio and then I'd go into the Chronicle, you know, just for a holiday shift during my holidays, yeah. and so switching over. What well, a great the- start to a career. Mm. Mm. Well, when I first met you, Richard, we were just talking about this before we started recording. Um, you'd already been at Seven Local News on the Sunshine Coast for a couple of years before we ran into each other. So how did you end up then in front of a camera doing television journalism? I always loved, going into journalism, I always loved the idea of TV. I don't know. I actually don't know why. Maybe it was the sort of the immediacy of it or, or the fact that you're using moving pictures and words and combining them together to create the story. Um, I've had a, an interest in 
film as well for quite a quite a long time. I've actually written a few me, uh, movie scripts, and to me, uh, working in TV was almost like you, every story was a mini movie. Uh, with a beginning, middle and an end and just having to sort of tie it all up together and and make it a smooth, um, I guess, a smooth story and and telling a story smoothly. And that was always the thing that I liked to do is, um, and and maybe no one else noticed it except me, but it was just, you know, being satisfied that a story seemed to have that beginning, middle and an end and it was just this complete smooth package. Tell me about the short films and the script writing. Well, uh, it was it probably started when we moved up here onto the into the Sunshine Coast in 1998 because at the time um there was the Noosa Film Festival, which was the original first yeah, yeah. Uh, film festival which kind of died off and now is back again. Mm. And I think it's I mean the different people now running it, yeah, but, um, yeah. but back well, the same then, name, that's right. Yeah. And back then, Channel 7 was actually a sponsor. So so the staff were given an opportunity to, I think we were given free tickets, basically, complimentary tickets. And I took a day off work and I went up there with my wife and we watched, I think, three films in one day. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to get right into this filmmaking. I'd like to direct a film. And... Um, I thought, well, what do you need? What do you need to start off with? You, you need a script, yeah. you know. So I actually started writing, um, writing some scripts, and I've written seven now. There was, you've um, written seven scripts. Yep, seven yeah. uh, feature length scripts. Wow. Um, I had one of them that was very, very close to actually getting made. Uh, it was a low. It really, it was this funny one because it was a, a very low budget film that I had planned to make myself with my friends, uh, and um, and I, I wasn't really happy with it. it was it was a dark subject matter I suppose and that's not really me as you know I'm, I'm yeah. not really a dark person but I just finished it anyway and I just sent it off to some producers and there was a, a an Australian producer who was very keen and they and he actually tried to raise some money and he actually shopped it in various places around the world to try to get some money for it and in the end it just as these things do that it just fizzled out a little bit he was unable to get the money yeah. and um and also I mean he had a few uh, companies, production companies that were interest, semi-interested, but they wanted me to do rewrites to suit, you know, their particular audience or, or their bent or whatever. And so I ended up doing about six rewrites. And um, and the first time I remember when I I got that uh, phone call from him and said, look, we like your script, we'd like to make it into a film. I actually invited some of my friends over and we popped the champagne corks <laughs> and did all that sort of thing, you know, because it was very very exciting, you know. Yeah. Um, but then after several years of yeah. rewriting, 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 and then, oh, no, we've, you know, dead ends, dead yeah, ends, yeah. dead ends, and um, it just sort of it, it's, it's a tough business. I've mm. got two friends. I've, I've done podcasts with, with both of them, actually, mm. John Coppola and uh, another gentleman called Ian Pugh, who are both script writers, one from uh, Connecticut uh, in the US, a part of the, the Coppola famous Hollywood name, and uh, Ian, who's been working on, on a number of scripts, and I know that it's... It can be disheartening when you, as you were talking before, Richard, you put your 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 heart and your soul and your life into this project. Mm. There are a lot of rewrites, and sometimes it can take two or three years. And then you have to hand that project over to someone else to shop it around to get financing. And and it, sometimes a lot of there's a lot of doors mm. that are closing in your face. Do you still write? Do you still kind of have that dream though of of having something produced? Yeah, I still have. I actually have two movie scripts that are partly written. Yeah. Um, one of them is another one. If I can, maybe if I can take one step back, I have actually produced uh, two short films, and and a third short film that 
is as 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 you know, it's it's in post production hell. That's a term that they use. So it's a it's a video. Uh, it's a film that um has been edited, but the sound recording on the day of shooting was just so bad. It was faulty equipment. So it, we basically have a a video with no horrible sound. sound. So we really um really need would need to sort of re-record. Could all, you dub it or your... translate it into another language? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could we could dub it and we could do all that, but it's just you know finding the time and the money yeah, and yeah. the people who are willing to do it. Yeah. And a lot of these, I mean, the three, I mean, the two short films and the unfinished short film. I mean, it's all done with through friends, you know, friends who are you know giving up their weekends. And I'm fortunate enough to having worked in TV, um, I've got some friends with some really good gear. Yeah, um, and. And good friends who you know really have, are artistic and who are talented and yeah. have got amazing equipment. So the quality of the products was um, visually and sound wise. The first two was was excellent. Um, I don't know about the storylines, yeah. but uh, but the the third one, the unfinished one, the, the video wise, it's fantastic. It just uh, the sound is horrible. What kind of film or movies or, or type of cinema do you do you enjoy? I mean, I just like drama. Yeah. Um, which really, maybe it sounds a bit of a cop out, but that covers so so much because I just love st- people's stories, and um, and with dramas you don't necessarily need a lot of special effects and you don't need a lot of props and that sort of thing. It's just simply having a good story to tell. Um, yeah. So, but I really like any sort of film. Uh, you know, I'll, even the most bizarre art art film. You yeah. Know, I, I love to watch that because I just sort of feel that you can learn from all of them if you if you're interested in that in that um, area of, you know, of art. Richard, how did you end up as the media advisor for Peter Slipper, who was probably one of the more controversial federal MPs in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I'd been, um, ever since I became a journalist, and even I think maybe before I became a journalist, I had an, I had a, an interest in politics. And when I became a journalist, um, I sort of developed more of a, an interest in actually working as a a media person for a journal for a, a member of parliament. Yeah. Um, so that was just an idea in my mind, and uh, and to be honest, you know, seven. I was at Channel Seven for seven years, and uh, it just got a little bit repetitive. Uh, the local news, and um, I just was starting to think that I'd like something different. And a, and a job actually came up with Peter Slipper's office. Um, he was a local MP, and I, his office was actually just down the road from Channel Seven at the time. So I knew him quite um, well, you know, from a in a professional sense. And um, and a job came up, and I applied for it, and yeah, I got it. So it was um, so it was it was great for me because it was an, it was a job on the Sunshine Coast. I could pretty much park my car in the same spot, you know, and, and just walk to a different office. And it was uh, something different, something uh, challenging. What and what would have been, you know, that comes to mind, one of the more challenging aspects of that role? Um, it was demanding to start off with. Um, but I guess, you know, my view, it was very demanding because, um, you know, most members of parliament, they're, you know, they're not, not I don't know if they're workaholics, if you use that term, but they're, they're hard workers and they're striving to achieve things. And it's a quite a tough arena to actually achieve anything. Uh, because you've got to uh, satisfy so many many people, you've got to satisfy the people who actually make the decisions, and that's quite hard when you're um, you know you're in a safe liberal seat, you know, way up in Queensland. Um, yeah, so that was one of the th- one of the challenging things, actually trying to achieve anything, but also uh, the media. I guess media attention was quite um, 
quite demanding as well? Well, well I know, you know, just from being the, the content manager of the, of the ABC, how many calls you would put out to a media, you know, someone that's handling a, a poly, whether it's at state or federal level. And so, and then again, coming back to the point that he was in the headlines so often, that your phone must have been ringing 24-7. Well, I remember... Did uh, you ever switch it off at night time, Richard? Did you? <laughs> uh, um, We're not allowed I didn't. To. I didn't, and that was... Um, that was probably a mistake of mine because, you know, you it, there were times when, you know, the phone would ring and, um, I mean, I was hearing the phone when it wasn't ringing, you know, and, yeah. and it, there was even times when the phone would ring and I would just jump. So it was almost this uh, really low-level PTSD almost, you know, f- fear of the phone. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah I can understand that. But I remember in one situation, this is um, because I did re- uh, resign – around the same time or hand in my resignation around the same time that Peter became speaker. Right. So I was sort of on, on my way out anyway. Um, there was a couple of other staff that, um, sorry, that when he became deputy speaker and then and then speaker, uh, there were a couple of other staff that were working, you know, that, that came in that um, I tried to help, you know, with with learning the ropes and that sort of thing. But they were, they were very talented anyway, so they didn't need that much help. But there was, I remember when Peter actually became speaker and I was down in Canberra with him and um, because it, I was in that transition of almost leaving I had I'd got my own phone um, because I obviously had a work phone yeah then I had my own phone as well which I just carried with me so I had two phones at that time and then, then there was also the office phone in um, in Peter's office in Canberra and I remember at, at, at one point that um, my work phone was ringing my personal phone was ringing and pretty much every Every line on the uh, the office phone was lit up as well, and it was ringing as well. But there were times when um, I was instructed not to answer, you know, and there were, or, and yeah. and just sort of uh, wait till it uh, blew over, and then we would phone everyone back, or we would sort of make a statement. So, so that was just one interesting time when, yeah, I remember just thinking, wow, three phones ringing at once, and yeah. I was the only one there. So. How long? How long did you have that role for? Uh, almost seven years. Wow, that, yeah. longer than in my mind. It's longer than what I could re- recall you being in that position. Mm. Can you name a, a highlight or highlights from that seven-year period where you're media advisor for uh, Peter Slipper, member for Fisher? The biggest highlight was the HMAS Brisbane getting sunk just off yeah. Mooloolaba, but um, that was uh, that was something that was already in process before I came on as a staff member. I was uh, I was lucky to be there at the time when I was writing the media releases about that it was actually going to get sunk. So that was a, a big one. And there was even, we were working on getting a second ship to be sunk out there, which um, at times it looked very, very promising because, I mean, the, the HMAS Brisbane, uh, that dive site is um, just one of the best sort of man-made, um, you know, wrecks, wreck dive sites um, known because it's just calm waters, it's close to you know, not far, not that far off the beach. It's close to restaurants and yeah. accommodation. It's a very relaxed sort of uh, boat ride out there, and and to have gotten a second boat out there, a se- second ship would have just it would have made it a world class attraction. But um, a lot of things have to fall into place with those sorts of things, and it just didn't happen. But um, but I I, I think that that uh, HMAS Brisbane would have been one of the big achievements, even though, like I said, I wasn't there. Through the whole process, yeah, I was just lucky to be there towards the end when it actually went down. You ran as an independent in a state seat then. Yep. Was that directly after no. you resigned or did you go back to journalism after you left uh, Peter's office? Yep. So I finished in um, – this, this is unusual timing. I finished – I remember the date, 31st of March 2012, is the date that I finished with Peter Slipper. And 
at that time, um, I how, was. Can you can you explain how you're feeling at that time? Was it relief? Because what uh, you just did describe to me, I can kind of get a sense of being hounded and harassed and phones going off. And it wasn't always like that. Um, and there were lots of good times too. You yeah. Know? Um, it, it, Peter's a wonderful man. You know, he's he's compassionate. He's caring. He um, he's incredibly. He's got an, an amazing general knowledge. And 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 to see him in, in a small group or even one-on-one, you know, speaking to someone just with his general knowledge mm. and his warmth. I mean, it was, you know, something to behold, you know, yeah. when he was – and that's something that a lot of people don't realise about him. And he, he was um, genuinely caring. He had genuine uh, great ambitions for achieving big things, you know, um, for Fisher and, you know, um, hopefully even in, in the wider arena if he would have got the chance. So he w- that was really, really wonderful. Um, so f- for me, even though it was a really tough – time it was just a a great learning experience and great character building and it's something that um i have to be very very thankful for because would you do it again yeah definitely i would do it again another Uh, poly or uh, in that role i would have to have a politician that i really believed in and um just to throw a bit of politics in i guess there's just no one that i can see on the horizon that i that i believe in that i would really um follow and again i think you might be talking about you know a, a conviction politician i think when you work um in that media bubble and the journalism bubble you as a journalist and then as a media advisor for a politician your eyes are open to a lot of uh different things and i don't know about you but i you know i stood back at at one stage and and said i don't like anybody that's in this arena you know i don't think anybody deserves my vote i mean i was lucky enough to travel down to canberra every so often and meet a lot of the you were on the inside what did you see there well you know it's interesting it was really interesting to see people um some well-known politicians, you know, one-on-one in a small group, just you know, with no media around, and just how um, how interesting they were, you know, and just how relaxed and how normal they were. But how most of them are just very intelligent. They've got great general knowledges. Um, they're funny. You know, they've got good senses of humour. Um, I guess they we only see them when you know they're on the floor of parliament or when they're sort of uh, being grilled Fronting, by the media. That's right, but mm. but isn't that the problem with politics these days? Because mm. they're told what to say by their party, they have to toe the party line, stick to the party, you know, the wording that they've received, uh, and and the public don't get to see mm. the real politic, you know, the, the person mm. behind the behind the scenes, mm. and and that's the issue. I mean, there's mm. such a narrow. You know, like a tightrope to walk, isn't there, Richard, in mm. terms of the public persona of a particular politician that mm. belongs to a particular party? Mm. That's right. Um, and I guess that the parties need to do that to protect their their message. Um, they can't have you know MPs just sort of saying whatever they want because then it just sort of fuzzes everything up. I, I understand, but it's be, it's become so narrow now mm. that that I'm not surprised that people, you know, politicians are down there with um, you know used car salesmen in terms of mm. untrustworthiness mm. Uh, because we don't really get to know what they're really. Mm. There's no and back to your point, there's no conviction politicians. There's nobody mm. that stands for a particular issue and is prepared to stick by it through thick and thick or thin. Mm. And again, I, I want to get your thoughts on the the media cycle and the role that it plays, like especially with social media and the impact mm. of something mm. like Twitter, where the cycle has become really quickly. Mm. Did you have mm. to deal with that again, just in that media role of what was happening on Twitter? Yeah, I did. But twi- uh, Twitter even, was probably a remember I left, I, I left in 2012, so... Um, Twitter was a thing, but it wasn't a big thing. And even no. Facebook was, wasn't a huge thing. I mean, okay. um, members of parliament were just getting their fa- their websites done, you know, and that sort of thing. So um, 
So I really think now it's much more more difficult for MPs as well because you've got so much social media. Um, their every move is scrutinised and, and as you know, um, a conversation can start on Facebook and it can go get out of control very quickly with yeah. people sort of putting wrong information in there or um, opinion and it, it can just go crazy. So it's um, I think that members of parliament and senators as well need to be so much more guarded now with everything they do. Which so, is a shame. Mm, mm. Yeah, And I think they suffer because of it. And I think the parties suffer because of it because, uh, I mean, you look at the state of politics in Australia federally at the moment. I mean, I don't know of anyone who really likes any of the parties. Um, Agree, and and I don't know, um, I don't know who I'm going to vote for come the election. So next two of us. It's, <laughs> well, actually, it's probably more than just two of us. Mm. I think there's a lot mm. of people that that it it just seems to be, and it's not. But it, on the, on the surface, a grubby game on all sides of politics. Mm. No one's mm. telling the truth. No one's telling us what they really stand for or believe in. Mm. So back to your run as a state <laughs> poly. No, but but oh, this yeah. but yep. this is what you mm. believed. You'd you'd mm. been on the inside. You'd yep. seen this happen. Uh, and you thought, well, you know, I want to, I want to do what's right. I want to stand for something. So I ran for the seat of Nindery yeah. as an independent in the 2017 state election, and the reason I ran is because I believe that I could do politics right, and that was the reason I ran as an independent. Um, I, well, I didn't approach any parties, and maybe the parties wouldn't have wanted me anyway. But um, I ran as an independent because I believe that um, you know there were no strings attached. You could do what you wanted to do. And I just wanted to listen to the people. And I did a lot of door knocking. I lost about eight kilograms during the election campaign. I read that, that you were, <laughs> you, you were out there knocking on a lot of doors. Yeah, so, um, and that was partially because I had a very low budget campaign, but yeah. also because, I mean, that is the number one. I mean, it's, I think it's proven in political sort of paraphernalia that it's the number one way of, you know, knowing what the people want yep. and reaching the people. But it's also the most difficult as well, you know. It's very, um, especially, you know, when you've got... Uh, hot weather and grumpy people who dogs. don't want to talk to you. Dogs, yep, yep. So, um, yeah, so I, that's why the reason I ran is because I felt that I could do a great job and yeah. I felt that I had the right motivation. Running as an independent man. And what did you base that, base that on? Because you were an independent, you didn't have the support of the parties. So how mm. were you going to achieve? Well, I was the editor of an, the Coolum Advertiser at the time, yeah. which takes in a large part of um, the – of Nindery. Yep. So I felt that I had a, a better public profile than just say Joe Blow, who was an accountant who just came decided yep. he was going to run as a candidate. So I felt um, I was probably sort of my um, my view of my notoriety was probably overinflated in, in, in hindsight. You thought you had a little bit of a profile. Mm-hmm. You'd been a journal. You'd been on TV for seven mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So I just um, and and um, yeah. So I just thought I'd give it a go and. Um, in the end, I ended up getting 4.99%, which I, at first I was a little bit disappointed with. But as I reflected on it, I was actually very, very happy with that because um, I think um, Dan Purdy, who won, um, I think he got something like 36% of the primary vote. Yeah. And here I was, an independent with uh, not a lot of backing, no party to back me, getting about 5%. <laughs> and just refresh my memory, Richard, though, Nindri was uh, a new, the boundaries were mm. just redrawn, weren't they? Yep. So Nindri, it, it includes Yamundi, Coolum, yes. Bly Bly. It was a bit of a funny one because it all went, actually went down to Kaluan as well, which is sort of North Budrum, and a little bit of North Budrum as well, and Kunda Park, um, I think Forest Glen. So it was just sort of a um, – it was an interesting one because it had these different communities. I mean, obviously the Yamundi community and the Coolum community and Bly Bly and even 
um, Kaluan in North yeah. Hudram. They're all different communities. So it and then also Kunda Park, which is obviously a um, mostly industrial. But um, but it would have. I mean, I imagine that Dan Purdy is having a lot of fun representing it, simply because of the different needs in the different communities and, and the variety. Well, he promised a footbridge up here at Yamundi uh, Noosa Road, but that ain't happening. <laughs> I know. I guess that was on on you know if if, if the libs got in at the time. Yeah. Can you? Um, I want your take on this. You look across the you know the federal seats and the state seats, and landlocked conservative seats as far as the eye can see. And sometimes I think, you know, the downside of that is they take those seats for granted and maybe this is one of the reasons why you thought, oh, I'm going to run, shake mm. things up as well. With the uh, exception of Clive and Fairfax for a period of time there, again, back to landlocked conservative seats, state and federally. Why is that? I mean, we don't, you know, that when, when, when pollies take these seats for granted, there's no more. There's no more money being spent in those seats. There's developments that aren't happening. There is infrastructure that's not being built. Hmm. Why? Why is well, it? Is it the nature, the profile of the coast because of its its age, its population? It's is that it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you're right. Next question. No. <laughs> um, I think you're right. But I remember at um, I things can change, and especially in an area like the Sunshine Coast where there's a lot of growth. I, I think I remember the seat of Kiwana. Uh, this is around the time that Chris Cummins was the Labor member for Kiwana. Um, the population had increased something like 11% between two elections. So, and I know that's not happening all over the coast. And um, yeah, so you can't sort of, sort of, um, you know, judge a lot of lot from that. But I mean, um, the population is growing a lot up here, and I guess uh, you never quite know who's coming into the area. But um, but I think that probably the Conservatives will sort of mostly hold this area for quite some time. A very long time. Um, I remember with Peter Slipper, um, at one stage he had, it was something like a 12.98% margin, you know, uh, as a Liberal. And around that time, um, you know, to, to have 12 or 13%, you know, this is a John Howard, late sort of John Howard era. I mean, they didn't really need to spend money up here to win the vote. And, and then there was a redistribution and it actually dropped down to maybe 10%. And I think there was even uh, there was one election where it dropped down further to about 7%. And I actually liked the idea as a staff member of having a marginal, elec- a marginal being more marginal. Because if we could get it right down to maybe 2%, mm. um, then suddenly the, the powers that be have to focus on this seat and spend a bit of money here. Yeah, to, we might to, see some to promises. Keep the we happy. might see the delivery of some, yeah. you know, something happening here. So it, it is definitely a downside of... Um, of this area that we're just so blue, you know. Um, yeah. And I think the, the Clive Palmer um, experiment actually benefited the Sunshine Coast. Do you think? Yeah, um, because... I, I thought it might just rattle the cage. Yeah. So, well, so, did, so you know, both it parties, Labor would start fielding some decent candidates and the Libs mm. might go, well, hang on a minute, we should... Mm. Uh, but Clive yeah. went, went away and Ted went back in. Yeah, so I sort of feel that, I mean, we're getting some work on the highway now and we're getting, Ted's get, doing very well. He's getting a few little wins here and there. And I sometimes wonder whether the, you know, the hiccup that was Clive Palmer in the, has just sort of made Canberra look Helped. a little bit more closely yeah. at, at this area. Um, because, uh, you know, unless money is spent here, unless the services are improved, well, then, I mean, the voters are going to get disgruntled and we've got disgruntled voters now. So, yeah. Uh, we'll just wait and see what happens. With your uh, with your attempt in 2017 at, at a state seat, is it the kind of thing? Well, you you didn't 
uh, will you do it again? Like, would you do it again? Yes. Terms, because you got to keep you got to keep out there. Yeah. It, it's a lot of, you know, this is the the one thing I always remember is you know politics is a very tough business. I was riding in the cab in a cab in Melbourne uh, election night 1996 when the news came through that John Howard had just been elected prime minister of this country. Love him or hate him, I just remember the journey that he'd been on. You know, he was despised by his party. Remember the tapes between Kennett mm. and Peacock? He was dumped as leader. There would have been a period of his life where he thought, he seriously went, you know what, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm probably never going to be prime minister of this country, yeah. ever. Yeah. And yet, on that night, and he ended up being in the second longest serving PM, is, is, do you have those thoughts in terms of, I'm just going to keep going because this is what I really believe and this is what I want to do? Well, another example is um, Anastasia Palaszczuk winning her first term where um, where uh, Campbell Newman was obviously very controversial, but there, yeah. there'd never been, I think, a one-term government in Queensland and he was a one-term government. And so you can imagine Anast- Anastasia Palaszczuk not thinking that she wasn't going to win. So and there was a landslide that night. Mm, yeah. Yes, and she won and it was... Um, a little bit crazy, I believe, within Labor at that time because they had to sort of get things together because they just weren't expecting to win. That's right. They didn't have the experienced so, uh, people on board. And, mm, and but now, to, now she's in for a second term. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She's done pretty fairly well, I think, in many ways. And I guess the, uh, the the poor performance of the LNP in Queensland has there doesn't seem to be any charisma there. Yeah, it's probably helped with um, her winning her second term. You know, when I was working with Peter Slipper and I'd probably worked on, you know, um, state federal and even local government elections, um, I'd probably worked on you know, about seven or eight elections. And the, the interesting thing that I always found was every candidate thought they were going to win. And it was almost this, um, I, th- I think there's a term for it, like um, political blindness or, or something like that. They all thought they were going to win. And I thought, there's no way that I'm going to fall for that. I'm just going to work my backside off and I'm going to work as hard as I can and just see how I go. But I actually thought I was going to win too, you know. So I did actually fall for that very same disease. Yeah, but you have to. You have oh, to have well, that I belief. Guess, I mean, I I mean so, if yes. you don't, if you don't have a, a belief that that you're the best person to represent that seat, mm. then how are you going to convey that to the person that just opened the door? Mm. You know, where you've where you've knocked. Mm. So I mean, you have to have that belief. Mm. Isn't that what they do with the presidential campaigns as well? You know, even the candidates that come up, they always introduce them as the next president. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> Please welcome, you know, this kind of thing. 2017, I mean, there's always the there's a, a massive fear factor, you know, um, especially having worked for Peter Slipper. I was unsure how people were going to take that. So how did is, they take that? Was well, that a negative? Did no, go, oh, it wasn't. And even um, uh, one... Uh, current member of parliament who who wasn't a member of parliament sort of a few years ago he he said to me look no one's talking about that no one's talking about that in in my you know with regard to me so um i think i think i did have one interview where where it was raised but i just mentioned to them you know in, in that interview that it was actually a very positive time for me in terms of personal development and and i see it as a positive and um character building and i learned a yeah. lot heaps about politics you know during that time and about the media and that sort of thing so um what was yeah. one of the ugliest things about the media that you had you discovered during that period of time? Oh, it's the classic uh, complaint about the media that um, you know they they twist things around and they don't use you know they leave certain facts out and that sort of thing. So it's just those sorts of things where, uh, but then again, you know you can never be happy. I mean, if you're writing the story, it, it, you write it the way you want it to write it, but someone else writes it, they write it the way they want to write it. So you can never ever be happy with how someone else writes the story, but. I guess there were times when I felt, oh, you know, this is just a little bit misleading or that's just a little bit unfair, but um, you yeah. really 
uh, didn't, you know, couldn't do much about it except. Do your paths still cross with uh, Mr. Slipper? No, I phoned no. him. Uh, I phoned him a couple of years ago, um, and he was, you know, very gracious and yeah. asked about my family, and he was just, um, it was a really nice uh, phone conversation. Um, but uh, yeah, but I haven't spoken to him since. Yeah, he's active on Twitter. Yeah, he's got he's, a lot to say. He's great on Twitter. Yeah, I think he's fantastic. What's well, a Twitter. nice insight, isn't it? Well, I mean, if I can just leave a slip a little secret out, I did actually ask him to write a column for our newspapers. Yeah, uh, because I just felt that he was, you know, from his Twitter um, messages, he just obviously so, has so much more that he wants to give, and he's got a certain insight now. Um, he was always, even even when he became speaker, he, he always had. Uh, this amazing understanding of how Parliament works. Um, he, he knew the rules and the and the laws and everything, you know, back to front. Um, he's got a great strate- strategic mind as well in many ways. So I think that he would have been a great columnist, but he um, never got back to me. So um, I would have liked, you know, I thought it would have been a bit of a coup for me as, well, as yeah, an editor too. To have nice insight. Mm. Yeah. Well, enough about politics. Richard, what about <laughs> you? You, you? Family, you've got a bunch of kids, haven't Your you? Your wife and four kids. Four? Yeah. And they're all they're what, all amazing kids. What are their ages? Uh, so the oldest is twenty four. Wow. Then twenty two. Must have started uh, young. Eighteen, and <laughs> um, we've got 11, an eleven year old as well. All right. Um, I'm fifty now, so we had our first um, child when I was twenty six. Yeah. So not that old, but no. You know. <laughs> I I don't know if you've listened to other podcasts, but if I have, you know, a dad or a mum in here, a parent of, of kids, and you know, I've only got one, but he's nine. I never miss an opportunity for some good parenting advice. Okay, this is something that I've only I've only really started recently, but I'm trying to make a real concerted effort to speak positively into the lives of my kids. So um, I'm a big believer in you know the, the power of what you say can materialize. It's the voice that kids hear in their head, isn't it? Yes, the voice of their parents. But it's even just the power of. Yeah, power of the spoken word. So I've been trying to. Sometimes I'll sit with my kids if we were driving in the car, and especially my um, my eleven year old daughter. I'll say, you know, you're really strong, and she'll just look at me like, oh, dad, you're being just weird. <laughs> oh, you're beautiful, you know. And I say, oh, you're a real leader. I think you're a leader, and I'll just say these random things yeah. that I want to sort of project onto her. Yeah. Um, so that's just something that I've just really started recently. And I even did it with my 18-year-old son in the car the other day. And he just – but the smile that came onto his face when, you know, um, oh, you, you're pretty caring, aren't you? I think you're very caring. <laughs> and just sort of these dumb statements that are – no, they're, nice, they're nice positive, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that and, you're sending out there. You know, you hear these stories about, you know, kids being told, oh, you're stupid, you're worthless, you know, all these sorts of things. And mm. that's what they become yeah. unless they are, you know, somehow able to, you know, get over it. And you hear, you know, of, of people saying, look, I'm going to be like Muhammad Ali. I'm going to be the champion of the world. I'm the champion of the world. I'm the champion of the world. And he became the champion of, of the world. If your uh, kids came to you and they said they wanted to enter politics, what would your advice be? I'd say go for it. I don't think it'll happen. <laughs> Why is that? But I just think that um, they don't really have a, a super interest in it, and I think they see it as uh, too difficult, too difficult to achieve things. Um, or maybe they don't. I mean, that's I haven't really talked much yeah. that much about them. Because uh, my nine-year-old them. came back after the first day of school this year, and he's he's quite switched on in terms of you know what's going on in the world and prime minister and Donald Trump and anyway, he came back at the end of the first day and um, he was going to run for class representative. 
So, uh, you know, we had a good talk about his strategy and you've got to sell him on the benefits. You know, why, why would it be a benefit for, for you to be voted class representative? And he really got into it, you know, so mm. we started writing out these are all the things. And, um, and then when I talked to my wife about it, I said, you know, he might be a politician. And she was very discouraging. She said, yeah. you, don't, <laughs> you don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's too hard. Well, well, the world needs good leaders. Yeah, you know, and, absolutely. And the, a lot of good leaders get tossed aside and we end up with the rubbish. So I think that... Um, do you, can I just interrupt? Do you think it's like a pendulum swing, though? You know, we go through a period of really bad leadership, and I'm thinking about the US here. No, you know, from w, George W. Bush mm. to Barack Obama to Donald Trump, what's coming next? Mm. You know, don't we? Don't you think? Have you observed that in your life? Uh, yeah, I think good leaders are very rare, and I'm a little bit, a little bit frightened that due to social media and um, due to the way that the world is now, that we may never get any good leaders again. Uh, they don't, you know, they. It's so difficult to lead, mm. and unless you've got sort of a ironclad resolve, I guess, to serve the people, in my view, um, rather than serve yourself or serve the, the, the parliament or, or whatever, um, unless you've got this ironclad ability to withstand all the lobbyists and all the demands from, you know, all these different sectors, well, I, I don't think you can do a good job. And um, I think that, that those sorts of demands are almost insurmountable now. You need someone very special to be able to do, be a good leader. Yeah. yeah, and John Howard. I mean, love him. I hate him. John Howard was um, focused on what he wanted to achieve, regardless of criticism that he received. But again, different political mm. times. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And and social media has made things very, yeah. very different. Because I, I I noted that it changed around the Gillard Abbott campaign, hmm. because the the media cycle was so quick, and Twitter was really coming into play. Then you know, by the morning, um, you know, Julia Gillard on the campaign trail would say, you know, just an example, you know, offering her an ice cream cake. By the afternoon, by the end of that media cycle, um, Tony Abbott's in front of the camera saying, well, I'm going to give you an ice cream cake with a cherry on top. Mm. And back and forward it went. Mm. And so we didn't have, you know, keep coming back to this, and, and I think you agree, you know, everyone's looking for someone that inspires them or someone that mm. is a conviction politician, mm. someone who says, I'm still sticking with the ice cream cake I promised you in the morning, and the, but, you know, th this is this is it. I'm not moving from, from what I believe in. Yeah, but I think... Uh I think promises yeah, at election time um, don't have the power that um, that we think they do, because um, I, I really feel. I mean, there's that saying, you know, people will forget, people forget what you said to them, but they won't forget how you made them feel. And I sort of feel that we're in the situation where all these politicians are promising things, yet all they want is a genuine leaders, leaders who care for them and who understand, yeah. you know, the the hardships they're going through and their needs. So it's not often, it's not always about making these massive promises. And even when you're talking about, I had a discussion on yesterday with someone about this. When you're talking about billions of dollars, the word billion really doesn't mean anything anymore. And because I think there was a Clive Palmer TV advertisement where the, the young lady or the lady candidate says 55,000 million instead of saying 55 billion. Mm. And some people were, that I thought was talking to um, were sort of having a go at her. And I said, well, hang on, you know, the word 55 billion, billion is such a throwaway term these days. To say 55,000 million actually gives us some, a little bit more context and just sort of reminds of so many people that have just, who just, whose eyes glaze over when you talk about politics. It just gives them some context about mm. what this figure actually, how big this figure is. So, um, I can't remember what question we were talking about. We were talking about, 
oh, know, yeah, about promises. promises and people will mm. you, what did you say people will forget what um, you yeah, people said but what you said but they I like your it. statement about it's it's about how they you make them feel mm. Mm. yeah and i think there's uh, that's what people i mean um I think that's what one thing that's really missing in politics. And I, I saw this with Peter Slipper when he was in a small group. I mean, he the warmth that he had and people were just sort of drawn to him, you know, with his uh, humour and his um, general knowledge and his genuine interest in, you know, in, in, in these um, these people. Um, but that's something that's lost, I guess, um, you know, in, in, in the big picture when you're sort of watching the politicians on TV and hearing them talking about negative gearing, which... To me, blows my mind that that's, a, that's even a election issue, because I mean, you know, you'd think that eighty-five percent of people, eighty percent of people in Australia don't have an investment house. You know, they're just sort of struggling week to week to put mm. money, food on the table for their kids. So, so to have even negative gearing as an election issue, yeah, it's sort of it just is bizarre for me. Yeah. So, but I, yeah. So, just getting back to my point earlier, I just do really think that, um, you know, that true empathy and an understanding of the difficulties that people are going through and the things that they need in to make their life better. Um, I think that's missing from politics at the moment. I think you can promise, you know, four lanes of the Bruce Highway, you know, from here to Brisbane. Um, and we've seen it before, you know, some really big uh, promises don't necessarily mean that a candidate gets elected. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of feel like that's that's really missing, that, um, that empathy for the people. Thank you so much for coming in. I really loved talking politics and all that stuff with you. Thank you, Richard. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Richard Brinsmar was my guest today on Conversations in Noosa. If you enjoyed that, please feel free to share it about on your social media channels and rate and review the podcast. doesn't matter where you found it. Maybe you found it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Wooshka, Stitcher, or uh, even uh, there on Spotify. Until next time, take care.